Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by eFish and Filson. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. Today, we have an absolutely amazing guest. He is the wunderkind of all things fish. He's the Australian chef, Josh Nyland. So if you are familiar with high-end fish cookery in the chef world, you will already know who Josh Nyland is. He hit the world stage with his book, The Whole Fish Cookbook, several years ago, which revolutionized the way that really many of us have looked at fish, butchered fish, stored fish, and cooked fish. It's really groundbreaking stuff in terms of using the whole fish, literally. He's one of the very few chefs who are working with a great variety of offcuts of fish and seafood and making them taste delicious. Well, Josh now has a new book called Take One Fish, and it is a very much a continuation of the Whole Fish Cookbook. And so taken together, they are an amazing body of work and they will change the way that you think about looking at fish and seafood. If you were ever going to buy a cookbook that was not Hook, Line, and Supper, and I hope everyone listening to this will buy my book, which is, of course, Hook, Line, and Supper, the other cookbooks that involve fish and seafood that you should definitely run out and go buy are Josh Nyland's. So without further ado, let's get into it. I think you're going to have an awesome time with this one. So here we go. Chef Nyland, I am absolutely overjoyed to have you on the podcast. Uh, I've been trying to make it work because uh, you are literally on the other side of the planet and we are finally here. So welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to kind of jump into it. I mean, I am pretty much every chef in the United States who gives a damn about fish uh, knows about your first book, The Whole Fish Cookbook. And uh, you have a second book that just came out, which I've had a chance to look at as well. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I kind of want to, for the benefit of everybody listening who doesn't necessarily know who you are and what you're all about. I know you have a, a high-end fish market and a restaurant or perhaps more than one restaurant in Australia. And uh, other than that, Take it away from in terms of give yeah. us a little sense about your background. Yeah, my name's Josh Nyland and I'm a chef. Uh, I've been cooking now for I think close to 17 years. Um, I started cooking uh, just before my 16th birthday, and I suppose I didn't grow up in the country and I didn't really grow up in the city. I was somewhere in between, so I was about half an hour from the beach. But I wasn't stereotypically one of those kids that kind of grew up fishing or enjoying surfing or anything like that. I really enjoyed sport. Um, I loved playing soccer and cricket and just, you know, being a probably a lunatic boy uh, like most of my friends. But I realized pretty early on that I just enjoyed cooking and I really enjoyed watching people eat and I enjoyed hearing feedback, whether it was good or bad. Uh, and then it just became this kind of sense of practice and improvement that was quite you know, desirable about the profession. So by starting my professional cooking at around 16 was really, really wonderful because it was such a formative part of my life and my career. And I was like a sponge and you take to things really quickly. So working with some of Australia's best chefs at that age was an amazing experience. It was very difficult, obviously, because uh, growing up half an hour from where I started my apprenticeship, you know, was tolerable and, and fine. I was able to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> and then when I was 17, I decided to move to Sydney by myself. And um, how far you know, was that from where you're from? 
Uh, it was it was two and a half, three hours south of where we live. So I couldn't just nip back to dump washing with mum. It's then, funny because I went to college about the same distance away for the exact same reason. Yeah. <laughs> so I found myself on, if I had a couple of days off, I would go back and see mum and dad. But I tried to sort of stay self-sufficient where I was. And yeah, it was trying to you know, immerse myself as much as I could. I found myself going to butchers and bakers and different places on my days off to see if I could learn a bit more. Um, and there was probably one restaurant that stood out along the way that had biggest impact on me. It was called Fish Face. Uh, and it was an all fish restaurant that, I don't know, the reason I went there was because I had worked on a fish station and I noticed how much detail and mathematics and cleanliness and you know, the sense that you had to always have an extremely sharp knife and just the details needed to be correct. And I quite enjoyed that aspect of um, cooking. So I really wanted to immerse myself into a place where it was just focusing on fish. And that's what Fish Base offered me. Um, and by working there, this gentleman, Stephen Hodges, who, you know, I don't know if many people would know Steve, but, you know, quite arguably the best fish cook that Australia has ever produced hmm. and wonderful mentor to me. Um, he was eccentric and loud and, you know, just intense. Uh, and a lot of the times nobody really extracted the best of what Stephen could give. And I found myself in a position where I got everything. I, he imparted so much information onto me and I thought it would be remiss of me to leave that venue and never to kind of use or, or go further with the information that he'd given me. And so that was really inspiration then to go on and pursue something more with fish that went beyond the Eurocentric style of what fish was in that restaurant. And I suppose what was being turned out here in Australia at that time. That's interesting in the sense that, I mean, I, this could just be a, uh, an outsider's perspective, but I don't get the perspective that Australia is, well, I mean, I suppose parts of Australia are fish mad, but it really, it comes across much like Texas in the sense of like, it's kind of a, red meat kind of country. Um, yeah. Like I think because we are such a big country uh, and central to the country is so much kind of dry land. Um, but coastally, whether it's in Western Australia or Port Lincoln in South Australia or all across the East coast from Queensland down to New South Wales and Victoria, you've got huge uh, fishing communities that there's such a sense of not entitlement, but this kind of sense of we grew up eating fish. We know what we like. We know what we love. This is how we do it. And sometimes hard to break um, the, the mold in terms of the way that we see fish, but there's definitely a big um, fishing kind of spirit here in Australia and one that definitely loves seafood. What you just mentioned is really very, very true. And it's kind of the goal of both of our cookbooks. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's true with kind of everybody everywhere, where if you think about fish, especially think about like the Mediterranean, which is where I kind of cut my eye teeth in terms of how to cook fish. Um, I mean, sometimes a yell at you if you add lemon. <laughs> and and then if you go to the American South, if it ain't fried, it ain't fish. And <laughs> And so, yeah, I think both of us have been like, you know, there's a little bit more to life than like, I have a huge chapter on fried fish because I absolutely love fried fish but there's more to life than just fried fish. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there is a sense of deep respect towards our, our mentors and leaders of the past and, you know, the education that they've passed on to us, there's a certain sense of, 
doing them justice and not deviating from the plan. And obviously there were certain rules and parameters set in place for certain economic reasons, but also, you know, just technical, like this is the way we do it and don't deviate from that. And so to go against that somewhat and to be provocative and to offer change in the form of whether it's a different technique or a method of cookery, or even just creatively thinking about a different opportunity that you see because you've been inspired by another animal in the form of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by doing that, you know, you and I both have managed to make inroads into, you know, looking at fish very differently, um, which can affect change with how we, you know, we're hopefully starting to see fish less as a commodity and more as a luxury food item that we need to be extracting as much as we can from so that we can impact our waters less. I really think that that is kind of the future of wild fish, at least where, you know, the feed the masses kind of, you know, fish sticks for everyone is going to have to be farmed fish. Yeah. I mean, cause you're seeing it everywhere where good fisheries, like I've been a commercial fisherman in Alaska on a kind of a very people poo poo it as a boutique fishery. It's a small set of gill netters where we gill net salmon. And then every salmon that comes over the rail we pressure bleed every single one and get it into a sea ice slurry immediately. Yes. And so the quality of our fish is the same. I don't know if you've heard of Copper River salmon at all, but um, that's the gold standard of salmon and really in the world. And we do the same process. So, but our fish isn't cheap, right? You're not getting our fish at Costco. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all wool body, has classic snap flap pockets, and a full width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. Yeah, that's right. I've got a gentleman here who's, you know, got a number of hours north of us here in Sydney, and he catches a fish here called Taylor. And Taylor, for a very long time, has always been perceived as, you know, a pretty cheap and cheerful fish that, you know, if you caught one, you wouldn't get rid of it. You'd probably flour it pretty heavily and then fry it in a pan. But usually the texture is so soft and Mm. the fish rapidly deteriorates due to the retention of so much blood going back into the fillet because it's never bled, you know, a lot. It's like our Pollock. Pollock do that same thing. 100%. So, you know, to have him call me, a few weeks ago and say, Hey, are you interested in any Taylor? And I said, not really. <laughs> but, <laughs> Even I you. Said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, but if you can bleed it for me and if you can spike it, if you can eat a gym and, and gill bleed and then slurry and get it to me within, you know, half a day, 
then I'll take it. And so he went to the very laborious effort to give me 25 kilos in the form of what I'd asked, all at a size around 1 to 1.2 kilos. And they were extraordinary fish. Well, we were able to pay him a higher price for his fish and his labor and love. And then we were able to fetch a higher price point here uh, in our retail business because everybody has this nostalgic affection for their father or their mother or their auntie or their uncle having caught a tailor at one point in their life. And that may have been their first iterations with fish. And it might have been on the form of a you know white bread sandwich with a bit of butter. Gotcha. But there is a stimulating quality about certain titles and brands of fish that to a degree can be exploited to promote diversity. But as long as we're encouraging our fishermen and fisheries to, you know, interact with those fish better and demand a better standard from them um, because ultimately it's going to, you know, benefit everybody in the long run. I'm immediately drawn to the idea of East Coast bluefish because East Coast bluefish are very similar in that sense that they are a nostalgic fish. They're fish that in when I grew up in the 70s and early 80s, we could feel garbage cans full of them. And Nobody would bleed them. Nobody would ice them. And then we would wonder why they lasted like a day and then they were cat food. Yeah. But if you treat them, we found that if you treat them exactly like we do the salmon, which is to say, you know, bonk them on the head, bleed them out. They're really a, they're like piranha fish. They're giant, horrible, mean, nasty fish that eat everything. Uh-huh. So they're like, rawr, 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 rawr. And, and, <laughs> and so like when you bleed them, they bleed out like instantaneously. They're a little bit like tuna in that respect. Yeah. Um, but if you bleed them out and then gut them on board, and isom, this is an entirely different fish. And me and a bunch of other people in the Northeast have started to serve bluefish that this has been done to. And people are like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, and there's lists and lists of those species, I feel globally, that you know we haven't scratched the surface in the opportunity of some of these fish because we're just so set in the ways of you know, how do we get more to market? How do I fetch the lowest common denominator? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the more I take, the more I can make back on such low margins. If for a moment, we could decide to just slow down, take 20% of what we're taking, care more for that 20%, grab the higher price point. And then on the receiving end, then what do we do? What's the matrix for how we generate the most potential delicious yield from it? And if we can fetch, you know, 75 even or 80 or 90% yield back from that fish of desirable food item, then we don't have to request the next lot of fish to come in because we're still working through what's already being caught. Exactly. For the short version for the people out there, you're well known for not only using the entire fish, you're pretty well known for your prep techniques, which are quite different, um, even from some of the things that I do. And I was, I, I was like, huh, I'll give that a go. Um, what in all of the stuff, I mean, when do actually, let's start with when did the whole fish cookbook come out? And then what has been your biggest source of pride seeing the rest of the world react to that book since then? Yeah. Um, so the whole fish, funny little story in October, 2018, mm. uh, I started looking around at publishers and then Hardy Brand put their hand up as being, you know, a publisher keen to let me speak whatever I wanted to say, which was quite unique uh, because I'd met a number of publishers that were unsure about the idea of a fish cookbook firstly because stereotypically they don't do overly well. <laughs> right. I've heard and, the same thing. Yeah. And then also the fact that I was wanting to say things that weren't so much in the common 
space and hadn't really been said before. So I, you know, to, to have a publisher sort of say, yeah, we're all on board, let's do it. Then, you know, in late October, then they said to me, when do you want this book to come out? And I said, well, September would be wonderful. And then they said, well, September's great. Father's Day, Christmas, all that stuff's really good here in Australia. And I'm like, okay, perfect, let's do that. And then later I heard them say that, you know, September 2020 was going to be really busy for them. And I said, no, 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 like the book has to be out in September 2019. And then they said, how much of this book have you written? And I said, oh, I haven't started yet. <laughs> and then they said, okay, well, you understand there's a lot of pages in a book and there's a lot of recipes and a lot of, you know. And I said, no, no, I get it. Um, I said, when do I need to have it back to you? And then she said to me, January 14, the full manuscript would need to be back. I said, okay, no worries. And so I got the book written in eight weeks um, wow. and, I, and I did it on my phone. <laughs> um, it was one of those things, like I said, I, at that time I'd kind of been cooking for quite a long a long time and I had so much information in my head. It was and a brain I, dump. Yeah, it was a big brain dump and, and some good editors to bring coherency to a lot of the conversation. But I was super proud to see the book go out into the world and for it to be received not only enthusiastically by chefs from a creative aspect, but from a very broad audience of people that were, were really captivated with the idea of doing more with a fish and also perhaps seeing it more in the same way that we would see an animal. Um, and I think that was one of the biggest things to come out of it and to see, you know, like chefs who I deeply admire uh, and have only ever dreamed of picking out their cookbooks, let alone meeting them or seeing my work inspired by their work and all of that sort of stuff. Then they were some of the biggest things to come out of uh, releasing that book and to travel with the book as well at that time as well when we were allowed to get on airplanes. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Like it, it must suck being over there right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not too bad. We're pretty lucky, but yeah, tricky. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, I think the entire United States has just kind of shrugged their shoulders at this whole Delta thing. They're like, you know, yeah. it is what it yeah. is. Sydney is getting flogged at the moment, but that's okay. It's yeah. still not as bad as, you know, most. So we're okay. So I've looked at Take One Fish and I've read most yeah. of it. Uh, which is your brand new book. And that book, like I, I keep reading it. I'm like, huh, it seems like it's just like more chapters on the whole fish cookbook, which now that you explained to it, how quickly the whole fish cookbook came. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> it's like, it's just like volume two. Yeah. Take One Fish was, even though it was a quick turnaround, because at the end of 2019, my publisher said to me, do you have another one in you? And I said, well, yeah, I'd be keen to keep going. And so they were happy for me to keep going and, what I felt was that even in such a short time after writing, you know, the whole fish, given the fact that I'd been allowed to travel a little bit, I'd seen a bit more, we'd done a few more services in the restaurant. We were all starting to understand what we were trying to communicate and why. And we were also personally seeing the benefits of having our own fish butchery, our own retail space, as well as that linking hands with our restaurant. And I think everything was just starting to come together nicely. And for me, bringing some further coherency and clarity and articulating my words a little bit clearer with take one fish was really the draw card of writing that because I was able to understand what I was saying better and offer some more tangible and realistic recipe opportunities that I see with fish and coming at it far more joyfully and slightly less exhausted um, this time around. So, 
I want to go back to your fish shop, which is, that's how I discovered you. So I was tooling around on Instagram and a couple of my friends who know that I'm a fish freak were like, you need to check this dude out. Look what this guy's doing with fish on Instagram. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> like, this is some trippy stuff. And I started to follow you on Instagram and I'm like, wow, like some of the stuff I'm like, yeah, there's probably very little chance I'm going to do that. There was another thing that was like, absolutely, I'm doing it. If I can sort of be act as a liaison between your work and Joe Sixpack, who's listening out there is... When you read these books, that's your reaction is going to be. There's going to be some stuff that like, no way, no how. And then there's going to be some things that you're going to adopt and make it part of your fish procedures for the rest of your life. Yeah, I believe. Like, I mean, I believe you have the opportunity to write a book and you have, you know, some thoughts of your own values and and things that you wish to impart onto others, then, then you need to be provocative. And I mean, without provocation, you can't really affect change. And so that might create negative provocation or positive, but I feel like, you know, the Instagram was a real catalyst behind, you know, stimulating Sydney's appreciation for what we do in the restaurant and getting people to come to our restaurant and be excited about it because my name is all over all the documents for <laughs> the, the lease and, and doing everything here. I'm the sole director and there's no partners, there's no money tree. It's, you know, make it work every day. Um, and the same for fish butchery as well. Um, opening a retail business, especially one that just sells, you know, fish is fairly, I don't know, foolish. (laughs) Um, in 2018, when we opened it, it's one of those things that we didn't understand fully how it was going to perform and what it could do. But, you know, by doing that, we were able to control our own supply and we were able to control uh, our byproduct. And by controlling your byproduct, you can control your creativity and you can generate a menu every single day for the restaurant. So I couldn't have St. Peter without fish butchery now. Mm. So when people sort of say, well, we see St. Peter open in the UK one day or in the US, and it's like, well, if that happens, then fish butchery has got to be there right next to it as well. Because um, I think for a fish business to operate now, uh, financially, effectively, and ethically correctly, then you need to have multiple streams of both revenue and opportunity going out so that you can realize the full value of the fish. You can't utilize the full extent of a fish if you're trying to be a very formal restaurant space or trying to be a very casual space. I think there's so many parts to a fish that you need so many different programs happening to express. If so I'm imagining myself as a customer at this place. I mean, actually I'm not imagining myself at a customer because I would know what to do with most of the stuff, but Bruce or Sheila walks in and they're like, okay, what am I looking at? And how do you sell like, you know, the average person on some of this more esoteric stuff? Like, I guess one of my, my question is, what's the education process? Like, do you have cards? Because somebody's sure. going like, this looks amazing, but I don't know what to do with it. Sure. So when you walk in, it's almost, I don't know, people here in Australia sometimes refer to it as Tiffany's. But when you walk, <laughs> in, when you walk in, there's a glass box right in front of you. And in the glass box, there can be up to 15 to 16 different species of fish. And they're all presented in a form that brings the most amount of comfort to, I suppose, the consumer who's coming in to grab something. And everything's very clearly labeled uh, from where the fish is from, sometimes who the fisherman is, uh, dependent then on who we're working with, uh, and the price per kilo, obviously. Um, everything is priced at a cost without bones um, so that people see how much the fillet is actually costing. And then for us, 
there is only one single slice or one single portion of each fish in that glass box. So that pretty much goes against the general market, you know, offering that we usually interact with, which is always abundance and ice and piles and piles of fish. Mm -hmm. This is very much one single of each. And we carry the rest of the whole fish on the bone in our cool room at the back of the shop. So when somebody comes in and goes, Hey, I want that one there. Can I just get four of these? Then we suggest, you know, firstly, because I've employed all chefs down there. So they've all, you know, got a really sound culinary background. Um, you know, usually if somebody comes in really directly and says, I want four of these, then there's a game plan already. They understand what they're doing and they kind of get in and get out for the person who comes in. That's kind of like, all right, I just want a white fish and I'm, uh, just, just whatever you think is good. And then usually we start with, well, how do you want to cook it? And then it's pan fried. Okay, great. I've got these four fish here. Um, this will take six minutes. This will take eight minutes and this might take two. Uh, would you like us to take the bones out of it for you? Would you like us to crumb it? Um, oh, wow. how, you know, there's all this added value that we add without going, oh, you want us to crumb it? That's another $6. Oh, you want us to bone it? Oh, that's another $8. Everything is an accumulated cost that we've built into the price of the fish based on what we offer. So, you know, basically how you would interact with a meat butcher or how I watched my mother interact with a meat butcher growing up, she would walk in and go, Hey Tom, what are we having for dinner? And he'd be like, Oh, I just made some sausages. And then it's like, great. We'll take a half a dozen sausages. And then the following week you'd go in and ask the same question and be like, Oh, I just corned some beef. Do you want some corned beef? And then it's great. Yeah, we'll do that. And to have that vocabulary and to have that comfort and ease and accessibility of purchasing, that needs to be introduced into the world of fish. And if we can think of fish as a butchery, as something more as a value adding and dressing a product in readiness to be sold and selling more than just the product, but actual comfort and, you know, a method and the best form of execution to realize the best outcome, then that's a far better kind of, way of working with fish than being a monger, which traditionally, if you look at what that means, it's to deal and trade in a commodity. And I think if we're forever going to see fish as a commodity, then in the next few years, there's going to be nothing left. So. So you mentioned the cooler. Yeah, you go. So talk to me about dry aging because you're not the only person who dry ages, but um, you feature it very heavily in your books. And, and I think the concept of dry aging a fish, by the way, don't ever hang salmonids by the tail. I don't think you have any down in Australia, but they're never supposed to be hung by the tail because you'll get gapping in the flesh because they're so okay. soft. Um, okay. And I see a bunch of pictures of like, ah, God, he must not be getting gapping on those fish because otherwise you, I never hang anything from the tail because of that. And it's just, they, right. they beat it into your head in uh, Alaska. So it's just a side right. note, but anyway, <laughs> um, you've got fish hanging in a dry cooler and to a lot of people that sounds super bizarre. Yeah. So walk us through it. Yeah. So, uh, at the time when I started in, I think it was in 2015, I was thinking about the fact that you can age meat to promote, you know, greater flavor and, and intensive, yeah, obviously intensify flavor, reduce moisture, um, and, and things can become more desirable as they lose water naturally. So, um, I just thought, 
why can't this principle be placed on fish? And I looked around and I did some reading and obviously Japan features aged fish quite prominently, you know, for centuries they've, they've done that, but in a way where ice is used and certain brining techniques are used as well. And so when I kind of went through it, I couldn't actually find any kind of, you know, understanding around, you know, dry aging in the form of the way that we would handle meat. So I started doing my own tests and I created a cool room, which is static. Um, so there is no fan. Mm, uh, it okay. sits between zero and minus one degrees and I've got rails in the roof drilled in. Um, none of the fish are allowed to touch each other. Everything's got to be very separate. Um, and when the fish comes in, because they're coming in from sources that I'm, you know, working with intimately, then the fish has been gill bled, uh, spiked, uh, and then, when they come to us, there's no ice on the fish. It's surrounding the fish, like separated by um, slap sheets um, to separate the fish from the ice. Um, and then when it comes in, then we go about the scaling and gutting process. Depending on the species, really, then we go about scaling, which might be cutting the scales off with a knife. You scale before you age. Yeah. So then we cut the scales off or use a brush scaler to get the scales off. And then we take the organs from the fish to then sort and then use for other purposes, obviously. Uh, and then we wipe out the cavity and the head with paper towel. And we use toothbrushes and um, fish pliers to remove any clotting um, mm. and the bloodline, obviously, off the spine. So it's very thoroughly cleaned, but without the use of any kind of water at all. Uh, and then we put the hook in the tail and then we hang the fish in our cool room. And it takes about a day and a half to two days to develop that very light tack mm. on the outside of the fish, which, you know, is that nice kind of not dry casing because dry is too harsh. The ambition really is not to, you know, create a leather finish. It's to reduce the content of moisture within the actual fish uh, whilst conditioning the skin in readiness if you are going to be pan frying or roasting so that it does you know give you that full opportunity of getting that crackling uh, on the outside so a lot of and this again was why i needed to write take one fish was because a lot of chefs kind of grabbed onto this idea of dry aging and kind of really went for the jugular and, you know, I was seeing all these fish on Instagram that were all dried out and <laughs> eyes, eyes sunken back into heads right? and, and brown, <laughs> brown lateral lines and all this sort of stuff. And it was, it was kind of wanting the end product without knowing the front matter. So it was kind of, I needed to articulate the fact that, you know, it's not just this thing about taking a fish and putting it into this magical cabinet and then three weeks later it's this extraordinary product. It's suggesting that a fish has a longer shelf life than just moments out of the water. Right. Um, and dry Which is aging, funny because anybody yeah. who really deals with fish for a living or a good angler, Fresh we kind of know that already. Like skates and sturgeon and there's a whole yeah. bunch of fish that you just know are better and three days fun. later. Absolutely. And to be armed with the knowledge that some species are better days later, that's an amazing kind of leg up in terms of shelf life and storage and not having that impending time frame that says, you know, we've got to start ramping up the lemon juice before we lose this thing. <laughs> um, so for me to kind of say that sardines are extraordinary and should be eaten on day one. Absolutely. Like I'll be the first to say fresh is best when it comes to a sardine or a, or a little mackerel. 
but then also to suggest that, you know, tuna, swordfish, those larger fish species really do develop, you know, an extraordinary amount of glutamates in the fish, which make it far more savoury and texturally far more appealing uh, in the latter stages, uh, obviously two to two and a half and even three weeks later. So, and when I talk about this process as well, we aren't brining, we aren't salting, there is no curing. This is maintaining day one freshness for an extended period of time. It's interesting. My technique is only slightly different. And so yeah. I've done this for ages is yeah. I use a brine. So I basically use what yeah. is an artificial salt water because um, I never touch fresh water to saltwater fish. Yep. And I'll wash them with that and then I'll pat yep. them dry because your paper tower bill must be unbelievable. <laughs> pretty sharp at it now, but yeah, it was for quite a while. <laughs> I'm like, damn, this guy's got to go through ass loads of towels. <laughs> uh, so have you also tried aging from the head? Like just hook the thing through the eyes and, uh, and age it from the top? Yes, we have. Yeah. We've done you, find, you find it better with it from the tail? Yeah, there's a number of species that just work profoundly better from the tail, but there has been quite a few species that we've done from the head. Um, I think originally when I was working at Fish Face, I worked with a Japanese chef who was Edomai trained in Tokyo and just really, he was fantastic. But, you know, it was always their objective to cut head off first because um, that was what spoils the fastest. Um, And for me by cutting that head off and then storing it like that, you're exposing the cut flesh to bacteria. And so that exposed ending basically uh, was, you know, you would inevitably have to cut that off before you started eating it anyway. Right. It gets gnarly. Yeah. So for me, what we started doing, especially with larger fish like tuna, uh, we would cut the head, but we would leave the very, there's like a section behind the tuna head which is quite a very large muscle. It's got two muscles either side and the spine running through the center. It's almost just the commencement of where the head tapers into the loins. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like to call that the neck, even though I know it's not. <laughs> uh, and we cure that as like a copper. So we end up with a tuna copper um, mm. that we cure on the bone. So that's an amazing product that we end up getting. Um, but that's because we have worked out that we were cutting the head off for aging we ended up cutting off the section that I'm now curing as loss. Um, so now we're benefiting from that part that we used to discard. So, yeah. Do you have any general uh, categories of fish that are better from the head or better from the tail? Tuna from the tail or X from we've the head? Got a, we've got a mulloway, which is also referred to as Jew fish. And that fish is it's like a big better. grouper kind of thing. Uh, kind of. Yeah. It's quite a long fish. It's not as, uh, it's not as football shaped as a grouper. Okay. Um, so it's quite a bit longer. Um, I don't have a comparative to offer in my head, but it's uh, like you said about the the gapping when you're hanging. It's got quite a um, wide muscle profile. It's got mm. quite um, broad muscle fibers. So by hanging it from the head, we notice that the composition of it stays far more firm and together uh, as opposed to going from the other end. And we notice that with larger snappers as well. Once they get to a certain size, about eight kilos and upwards, then we reverse the hanging um, so that the composition stays tighter. Hmm. That's good to know. I mean, you don't get any salmonids down there, do you? Any s- salmon sorry. trout or char? No, uh, no. We like the well. We have rainbow trouts, and uh, we have a number of small freshwater trouts. Yeah, but they're um, teeny brown trouts and things. But they're only plate size. But then, um, 
the aquaculture kind of world here in Australia has salmon uh, and ocean trout. Um, but we have no wild, except for a one fish called Australian salmon, but that's a white-fleshed fish. Um, so <laughs> Not actually a salmon. No, oftentimes you get, you know, American guests coming through and wondering what this Australian salmon is because it's white. <laughs> so. so, okay, talk directly to a regular person and what are the things that you really want them to get out of your book? Like what are the, like the things that anyone can do to either get more out of your fish or treat the fish that you catch better? Yeah, well, the front matter in this book gives a slightly more crystallized approach to what to look for uh, when you go into a market space or when you go into a store. Um, So it gives some really good detailed information with regards to quality points. Uh, And then I think with regards to the recipes, Um, because we've categorically organized the book in a way that goes from extra small through to extra large. um, I think that's really assistive. And like you mentioned before, the chapter on frying that's in your book, in the first book that we wrote, The Whole Fish, um, we organized the chapters in methods um, because at the time I felt, you know, for the average person, part of the deterring qualities of a fish, Oftentimes, we don't know what method of cookery to place with a species of fish. You know, if we get told we should be eating more bonito or we should be eating a gurnard or a mullet, it's like, okay, that's fine, but how do I actually cook it? Because if I do the one-stop method of cookery that I only know, which is to pan fry a salmon on a mackerel, uh, then we're going to end up with a polarizing, you know, outcome, uh, which, you know, will be most likely to suggest that we'll never pick up a mackerel ever again. Ah, they love their fried mackerel in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point because, again, in this book, what I've tried to say as well is there are cultures like all around the world. You've got over a billion people that rely on fish as their main source of protein. And, you know, to suggest that this guy in Australia or this guy in America is coming on and telling us that, you know, we need to be eating the whole thing. And there they are waving their hands going, we've been doing this forever. I mean, absolutely, that is true. Like centuries, they've been consuming every single part of not only fish, but animals and vegetables based purely out of necessity. Um, For me, it's very difficult to translate the textures and the flavors of that whole fish utilization across into a Western format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the voice that is within my book and probably yours as well is directed towards an audience that has the privilege of choice and that has, you know, the ability to choose what is on their dinner table tonight and next week. That really is what I'm trying to be provocative towards to say, rather than just that fillet, let's think about, you know, a method of cookery if we were to leave one bone in the fish perhaps or you know, because this looks like a piece of pork, like let's prepare it as if it was pork. Um, So a lot of the methods in the book are just stating methods that we already have an exercise muscle for, like ground beef. And then you go to my chapter on tuna, which has got ground tuna in it. And so it's, you know, beef out and tuna in. And so we've got the lasagna, koftas, mapo tofu, and a spicy Calabrian style and do your salami. So there's a way that we can use fish without too much technique required. It's just knowing Mm -hmm. what to ask your stores and your markets to do for you. 
Because if you can walk into a store and say, can you butterfly this fish for me uh, and take all the bones out for me? Or can you grind that tuna trim down for me and I'm not going to pay as much as that sashimi cut center roll. I just want all the muscly tail bits, but can you, can you chop it all down for me so it's a bit of a mince product? It's um, funny, a lot yeah. of Italian places do that already because Sicilian, yeah. Sicilian tuna meatballs are a thing. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's just, I suppose, arming yourself with what to ask for because if we don't know to ask, then we'll never receive. And if as a store owner, you are only being asked to provide four species of fish, yeah. all filleted and all skin off, then that's ultimately what we're going to continue to see until they're not there. And then what do we do? So. So let's talk guts and parasites, <laughs> right? Because I want to love fish livers, dude. I really do. But so many times that I'm looking at a really pretty one, it's just got all kinds of worms in it. And yeah. I've made unkimono with salmon livers, and it works. Yep. There's uh, whitefish. You know, it's an ocean white. It's ocean white or not ocean whitefish. Um, Great Lakes whitefish are a relative of the salmon and trout. Disney. Right but they have livers that you can like cook like a chicken liver and they tend to right. not be parasitized. But I see so many worms and so many of the things that you have in your yeah. book. I'm like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. It's funny because I, you know, hadn't been exposed to parasites within the livers until I went to promote the whole fish cookbook in the UK. So I got to the UK and I said, you know, can I get a few John Dorries for this dinner that I'm doing? And so these Cornish fishermen went out for me on a day boat, specifically caught me half a dozen John Dorries, and I got them and I started processing them down into the chops that I was doing. And then I, you know, I came across the liver and I'm like, awesome. These are huge. These are going to be great. I turned it over <laughs> and there's about a thousand black little spirals tucked in underneath you know, one of the loads of the liver. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? And so that was really my first kind of, uh, you know, insight into all these parasites that kind of are burrowed into the liver. Here in Australia, like there are a handful of fish that end up with parasites through the flesh uh, and I suppose through the organs as well. But I suppose when I was working with these particular fish that I'm talking about, I was working in a, I suppose, an equivalent of a three-star restaurant in the city that was purchasing their fillets. So I was seeing these fillets come in and there would be these thin black worms running through a very white fleshed fish. Yep. So you'd have to tweeze out those parasites um, before you would use them. That used to be um, my entire job at a fish restaurant was processing oh fish with a light box and all that. Like, wow. Oh, dude. It was, have you ever processed swordfish? Holy yeah. Christ. Like you can have a conversation with the worms in those things. Wow. wow. Like I'm sh I shit you not. There are, as long as your arm. Goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, we, I'm, yeah I, so I feel very spoiled. So everything that you see in the books on Instagram and everything that is pristine, you know, no worms, no parasites, just, you know, glorious product. He's so, so lucky. Very. <laughs> yeah. The labor's a bit easier. Yeah. So the reason why you, whenever you see a swordfish on somebody's menu in, at least in the States that yeah. there'll be swordfish steaks for sure, but there's always yeah. going to be like swordfish kebabs because <laughs> yeah. That'd be one of those pieces that like, yeah, we're going to cut around that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and monkfish. Oh my God. Monkfish are the worst. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Do you yeah, work with them too? No. So like monkfish, the closest thing we have to monkfish comes out of New Zealand. And I don't know if you could actually, you know, call it a proper, like a true monkfish because they're a lot smaller. 
and the same with turbot because we don't get any turbo here in Australia. There is one like it's labeled turbo out of New Zealand. Um, but again, it's nothing like the true uh, turbot from the Atlantic. So, Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, eFish. They deliver fresh, never frozen, wild, American caught day boat seafood right to your doorstep. What's unique about eFish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you place an order. Their business operates in the same way. I order fish from my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it is hooked until it arrives in your doorstep. The holiday season is upon us, and now is the perfect time to try eFish. Whether you're cooking for your friends and family, or you want to send a unique and memorable gift to a distant loved one, eFish has you covered. From stone crab claws to lobster to halibut, eFish will elevate any holiday feast. They have even curated special holiday bundles that will ensure that no one at your dinner table was left hungry. So if you want to try fresh seafood for the holidays, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get $15 off your first order with the code HuntGatherTalk. That is HuntGatherTalk, all one word. And again, check out e-fish.com. We're deprived of some species, but then blessed by others being the coral trout and King George Whiting, uh, which are, you know, two of the best fish that we have in this country. So the coral trout, when you guys out there see the book, it's this really trippy looking giant, like pink grouper (laughs) thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've eaten fish probably all over the world. And I've eaten New Zealand fish, but I've never eaten Australian fish. And I've never had one. So what can you liken it to that you've had in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, well, because a lot of people are like, oh, have you got anything about turbot in there? And I'm like, well, no, because I don't have access to it. But the reason I put coral trout in there, knowing that, you know, no one else in the world can get that fish, I proudly wanted to put it in there because I love it so much. But I put it there because of the density of the flesh and the gelatinous and sticky, sweet quality that it has is so similar, in my opinion, to a turbo. So, hmm. I mean, it doesn't present like that at all because of its, you know, a round right. fish. It's around it's got red skin but it's so firm and dense and sweet. And when you activate it with heat, there's so much gelatine. So it becomes so sticky when you put it near your mouth. Um, And because it feeds on a number of crustacea, then you do get that red appearance on the outside. It's a reef swimming fish and it behaves so well across a number of different methods of cookery from steaming and poaching right through to, as I presented in the book, putting it onto a rotisserie cooked over a fire. I saw that. That was cool. It so sounds good. like, have you ever had scamp grouper? Because it sounds yeah, a lot similar. like a scamp. Similar. Yeah, absolutely. Similar in composition. So, And they kind yeah. of look the same too. Like, Yeah. I like that you have, especially in the second book, have given uh, at least a, a stab at Western fish because it's like, what the hell is this Murray cod? Or well, yeah. whatever, you know? And yeah, that's right. I don't know if you're familiar with Hugh Fearnley Whittingstall. Yeah. But he did a fish cookbook. Uh, I actually blurred the American version Wonderful. of it. Um, it's great. It's nice, but like they don't even attempt to tell you like this is a pink junkadoo. I'm like, well, what the hell's that's like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Stephen Stephen Hodges, who I mentioned before from Fishface, he wrote the Australian Seafood Cookbook, 
with um, two other gentlemen here in Australia. And that speaks only to uh, fish of the Commonwealth here in Australia and I think New Zealand as well. So that's a very, very specific book uh, for Australian fish. And I think writing the whole fish cookbook, I did use quite a number of Australian fish species. And then my publisher said, you might need to, you know, expand your horizons a little bit and offer some broader context for your international audience. Right. I mean, at least give us a, like, a, what's it kind of like, you know? Yeah, I, mean, that's right. I don't even deal with species at all in my book. I deal with classes of species. Right. Because there's something like 10,000 different species of fish that are marketed in the United States. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Broad pool. So back to guts for a second. Yes. Um, if you're going to ask someone who recoils at the very concept of eating anything other than the meat of a yes. fish, yep. what's the gateway drug? Where do they get started? Um, well, when there's parasites involved, that's very difficult. Um, so for me, I, and, and I mean, seems like a cop-out but i always use meat as the reference so as a starting point you're not to add layers of difficult textures around what is already a difficult texture when you're talking about you know the stomach or like the tripe and the livers uh eyeballs soft rows and milk like all of these things come with such difficult textures and so if you can alleviate those textures through the use of you know really delicious techniques like frying, uh, the use of salt and acidity. There's ways of softening the blow. And I think one recipe that comes to mind in the new book is the salt and pepper John Dory tripe, so the stomach mm. that we prepare in a way that you would visually, you would look at and think, well, that's crumbed calamari. Uh, and because of the treatments and the way that we've processed it, then texturally that's how it performs. And because the flavour is so void of, you know, any kind of discomfort, then it basically whatever condiment you're dipping into then becomes the flavor that's front of mind. Gotcha. So it's just trying to be, you know, using discernment to select the best method of cookery uh, and trying to alleviate the discomfort by the use of ingredients that may not necessarily have been thought of um, that was best suited to that. So, I mean, even in Japan, you know, eating a fish eyeballs poached in a broth or, fish milk served in a dashi that's chilled, you know, all these things just add to the layers of discomfort. But, you know, if you can use a slightly more westernized approach and build some layers of flavor around it that, that brings some comfort and good humor, then you can have a good experience with it. I've got a couple of my suggestions for the people I talk to are a couple. Number one, on big ass fish, you know, like a big tuna or something where, the, you know, the heart is about the size of your palm or a little bit smaller. Yeah. salt it down, like bury it in salt yep. and then hang it. I basically unfold a paper clip and hang it in a refrigerator rack and let it sit until it's hard as a rock. And I shave it with a microplane over pasta. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's super, super easy. You know, and even if there were a parasite in there, A, it's going to get ground up and B, it's going to be deader than custard's nuts. Just to uh, see. <laughs> that's so that's it. one. And then the other one, I mean, lots of people eat row, so I'm not going to include row in there. Um, yeah. But sounds. You know, they like cod sounds. You have a recipe that uses swim bladders in it. And then right. that one's a little bit, it's like the skin chips that I make. They're a little chefy, but not that chefy in the sense that you got to pull it out. You got to, you got to cook it a little bit and then dry it and then you fry it. Yep. Chicharron. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I actually have a recipe for fish skin chicharrones in the uh, cookbook. And 
I find those are real easy. I think I just need to look at a whole lot more livers because they look amazing. They've got that fatty look to them. And I'm used to duck livers because I'm a duck hunter. And so every year we'll get a good dozen really, really like they look like foie gras, except they're coming out of a wild bird and they're not as big as foie gras, but you know, you know what I mean? And that there's a ton of fish livers that are that same color. Yeah, hundred percent. And the tranche of um, or the torsion of uh, John Dory liver with the chops that turns jelly in my book is kind of testament to just how pale and fatty and similar they are to a fattened goose liver. So, how fishy are they? They're really they're so mild. The John Dory specifically, and that's why I use that one for the book. When they're peak winter and they're full of fat, and you know they're beautiful fish. Like they are so, so, so similar to, to that of duck. Um, and it's so clean. Uh, the only bit of uh, fish kind of scent that you get to it is a sense of um, minerality and salinity. It's kind of self-seasoning. Um, but there is no discomfort in, in the form of blood or taint or any kind of metallic quality to it. So given, yes, there's other larger livers that, that are in those bigger fish like the tunas and such, you know, where they do so much work and they're pumping, the heart's pumping, there's so much blood going through the fish. A lot of these livers are really hard to bring back to a state of usability because there is just so much blood running through it. When you pan fry, you do get that metallic taint to it. Gotcha. So I guess I'm sussing out and you tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. If you're going to experiment with fish livers, I will A, obviously look for creepy crawlies. B, it sounds like fish that don't do a lot. Um, yeah. are, are arguably going to be better than so a, like a pelagic, like a wild. The life of the better. Mm. Okay. So like a rockfish or yeah. anything that just kind of hangs out in a reef might be a good candidate. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear from you. Yes. Before we go, 10, like, yeah, you don't have to be 10, but, but some, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, you're counting on your fingers. <laughs> no, a, a few like, Hey, if you do nothing else, Try these things, you know, talking to just some regular dude, not me, not a chef. What are the, like, just a few things that like, hey, if you do this, you're going to make my heart smile. <laughs> well, um, I mean, without wanting to get into a hugely <laughs> broad chat here, just for once, just try not washing a fish under a tap, like to see the outcome, like just to, to hope that somebody listening to go and do that, to not use water when processing a fish to then just see what you personally think of the product um, would be a great thing to experience. Um, And then when cooking a fish, like with the ambition to pan fry or to get some kind of crispy skin. Now we've been talking about this dry aging thing and hanging and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, what do I do? Cause I've just got my regular fridge and my wife will kill me if I tip the crisper out on the floor or, you know, whatever. But the idea is if you do buy a fish fillet, take it home, put it on a wire rack or a cake rack and set it on a dinner plate and pop it into your fridge and just allow the fridge to do its thing for a skin full side up or skin side, skin down. side up, yep, skin side up. Yep. and just no salt, just leave it alone, put it on the rack leave it for a full day and then come back to it, pull it out of the fridge, leave it for half an hour and then go ahead and pan fry the fish. And I promise that the skin will be, you know, 25 times better than what you've experienced before, just based on the skin drying out partially so that you get a better drier skin. And then when you are pan frying, work with ghee. Uh, It gets to a higher smoke point, tastes better. 
and it's pretty readily available now, I hope. I yeah, I mean, well, it's clarified before. butter, which is the same thing. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So a really great flavored product and, like I said, a high smoke point. So work with ghee. Um, and then when you're pan frying a fish, when you put it into the pan, naturally anything cold uh, will want to pinch up a little bit because it's reacting to the heat from the pan. So it's to allow that natural pinch to happen and then adjust the temperature slightly down and then set a weight on top of the fish. I was going to say, I put know, a bacon press on it. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's got their ways. Like I've seen bricks, I've seen, you know, <laughs> pots and pans and all sorts of things. I sell one, but that's another thing. So it's just, you know, I work with one that's, you know, over one and a half kilos, you pop it on top and it's not just about dumping it on top to keep it really flat. The idea is, is to set a weight on top of your fish so that you do get that even, you know, caramelization on the skin. But it also, the main objective here is to benefit from heat transfer. As heat rises and it settles on that stainless steel that's sitting on top of the flesh of the fish, then the warmth that's conducted there will start to cook the top of the fish. Mm. And a lot of people say, do you heat your weight up before you cook? Uh, absolutely not. You would create this it uneven cooking if you had, yeah, and it would stick. So you would have to start oiling it and all that sort of stuff, which is not the point. The point is we allow natural heat to convert, go up, settle on the top, warm the fish gently. And by doing that, then there isn't a need then to go to the oven. Uh, because when you go from pan frying a fish on the stove at a really high temperature and then transfer to the oven at a high temperature, everything's really firm and tight and hot. And so what we're trying to do is, yes, cook the skin nice and quick and get it nice and crisp and get that caramelization, but we're also benefiting from the heat that's rising to then cook the top of the fish, but doing so far more gently and so that we do get something that's far more slippery and silky and does justice more to the uh, texture of the fish. So that would be a couple of little hot tips um, to try out next time, the ones that are most easy to... Um, kind of instate into your repertoire straight away. Cool. Cool. Well, all right. What's the one fish that you hate? Oh, uh, a uh, fish that you hate because well, <laughs> everybody has their kryptonite. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I'll probably get whacked over the knuckles here, but salmon, cause I just don't enjoy the flavor. <laughs> Sorry. <Begun! laughs> Cut me off now. <laughs> yeah. And you've, and I assume you've had really good salmon. Uh, I have, and it is textually wonderful and skin gets nice and crisp and there are aspects of it to enjoy. There's an overarching feeling of, I don't really love this. Wow. So, wow. That's crazy. That's like, I hate cottage cheese with the heat of a thousand suns. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those yeah. things that like, everyone's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So salmon is your kryptonite. Interesting. Yeah. I have heard that but never from someone with a palate like yours. So that's <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, before yeah. I let you go, um, so your two books are the whole fish cookbook and take yeah. one fish and both of them are available here in the United States or in Canada or really wherever you're listening to this. Uh, yeah. I know they're on Amazon and they are available wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. So how does someone uh, find you on this series of tubes that we call the internet? Yeah, so uh, Instagram, uh, the easiest one and the one that I traffic the most, uh, Mr. Nyland, M-R, Nyland, N-I-L-A-N-D. Uh, and then uh, I'm on Facebook, but that's not a thing anymore, I don't think. So 
yeah, Instagram's good. So Fish Butchery is also our other account. Uh, and St. Peter Pado is our restaurant. And I'm opening a new business called Charcoal Fish. So that one there will be open, I hope, in the, inside the next month. Um, but, you know, taking inspiration from the Australian charcoal chicken shop and applying that logic into the world of fish. Well, I'm going to let you go. I really am going to let you go on this way. But please tell me you've done an Australian meat pie with fish. Yes, we've yeah. done a tuna meat pie with tomato sauce on top. I'm like, you kind of have to, like, I, I still haven't been to Australia yet, but I've been to New Zealand and the single greatest thing I ate in New Zealand were their, were their meat pies. Yeah, absolutely. Same with a good sausage roll. My last post on my account is a, a beautiful uh, fish sausage roll. Nice. So. That's what you're to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, thanks a lot, Chef Nyland. Um, this will probably air in a couple, two, three weeks and I will let you know when it runs and I will post it all over the social media stuff. Brilliant. Thanks for the chat. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Take care. That is another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by Filson and eFish. Thanks, as always, for spending part of your day with us. I really, really appreciate it. And if you are so inclined, I would love it if you could review and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform is best for you. If you want to find me off the podcast world, your most likely spots are my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can easily get to that by typing in huntgathercook.com or you can find me on Instagram where I am huntgathercook. You can also find me on Facebook where I run a private group called Hunt Gather Cook and you have to answer some questions to get in, but just tell me that you heard me on my podcast and I will let you in. As always, good luck out there. Be safe, be fruitful, have a good time, cook well, and have fun. I will talk to you soon. And again, I'm Hank Shaw, and thanks a lot for your support.